Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for being able to meet here. We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for everything we get to discuss. We pray that you continue to be with us and help us to uh, get through this material. And we pray not only that you would uh, help me to present it, but give those understanding that are here that you give me the right words and clarity to cover these things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the next one here is a real heavy one. I'm sorry. But uh, you really gotta, you really gotta understand this. I mean, if you're gonna farm, garden, whatever you're gonna do, you really gotta understand the nitrogen cycle. And this is the one that has been studied probably extensively, because uh, a lot of money has been got, has, has been put into research, both by the federal government and state governments, universities, uh, chemical companies, all kinds of people. But I'm going to talk about the nitrogen cycle. Now, that's it right there. In one picture. If, I could put it, if we can put it all in the picture, this is the best picture that I could find. It includes a lot. It includes a lot. But, uh, and this, this image I posted on the website. It's on there as nitrogen cycle. It's a, a .jpeg or something like that. And you can find it on the Google Drive if you want to pull it up. Um, but, well, let's see. Where do I begin? Where do I begin? Well, let's pretend we're atheists, right? Let's pretend we're atheists and... Let's pretend we're Darwin, and we really want to prove ourselves. Imagine we could resurrect Darwin. I'm going to pretend I'm Darwin. We'll start from the top. There's nothing in the world, right? The world was void and empty like Genesis 1-1. And somehow it all evolved, right? Well, before anything can evolve, right, doesn't matter how simple the species is, it needs to have some kind of protein. Doesn't matter. What's protein made out of? Nitrogen. So either whenever the world somehow came together, somehow there was already nitrate and ammonium available. But if it wasn't, we have this challenge, this real difficult challenge. You see, uh, oh, I wish I had a pointing stick of some type, but I don't. Anyway, way on the top where it says atmosphere. Um, that's atmospheric nitrogen. If you look at the bottom corner right here, these are all the oxidation states of nitrogen. NH3, which is a negative three, we refer to that as ammonia. Got NH4, which is a negative three as well. We refer, we, that's also referred to as ammonium because it's positively charged. Then you have diatomic nitrogen, which has no charge. It's N2 gas. You have uh, nitrous oxide, uh, N2O, which is an uh, oxidation state of one. You have uh, nitric oxide, which is uh, NO, oxidation state of two. You have a uh, nit uh, nitrite, which is an NO2, oxidation state of three. You have NO3, nitrate, oxidation state of five. Uh, for some of those of you that haven't taken chemistry, I'm sorry, but you really got to understand rate of reactions and redox reactions. That's moving the charge of any given element. Sulfur and nitrogen vary substantially in their oxidation states in the soil. And the thing is that microorganisms have the capacity to do things that um, mankind just does not have. And a lot of the research has gone into trying to figure out how does... Uh, rhizobium, or, or well, more importantly, nitrogenase, which is an enzyme that is excreted by rhizobium, which is a type of bacteria, or frankia, which is another type of bacteria associated with alder trees, if you're familiar with them, or uh, uh, to actually uh, fix nitrogen. That is, to pull nitrogen gas out of the atmosphere and convert it through aminization and, and then eventually ammonification down to NH3, which through uh, species of organisms known as uh, 
nitrobacter can take that from nit uh, nitrate to NO3, I'm sorry, nitrite to N uh, nitrate, and uh, be used by plants and organisms. So this gets kind of complicated. It requires some chemistry. It requires understanding of the sciences. If you remember in the first presentation, how Ellen White said over and over and over again, we, science must be brought into agriculture. And I'm sorry, folks, but if you haven't taken any chemistry at all in your life, I don't know how to even say it. Uh, so it's going to be a little rough. It's going to be hairy. That's why I said this is definitely was prepared as advanced. That's what was requested of me at first when they asked me to put it together. That's how I put it together. And when I arrived, I saw the sign, and I said, oh, boy. But uh, I'll do the best I can. So this is really simple and really complex <laughs> all at the same time. You, you see, because if you believe in evolution and you're Darwin and you're up here trying to figure out how in the world did all this nitrogen, all this protein, all these amino acids which make proteins get into all these living organisms before we could ever get to saying that the first organism came into existence. They argue, well, it came through rainfall, it came through other methods, but really they're so minimal, they're so minute, the additions, and they're gone so quickly through ammonification, or denitrification, really, denitrification. They're lost through denitrification. That's another one to add to your list of terms you've got to understand. And denitrification is a conversion of nitrate to a nitrogen gas. So when you put those fertilizers down, and this is favorable in a anaerobic, usually flooded, waterlogged soils, your nitrate, that expensive fertilizer you went and applied, will readily metabolize by microorganisms, uh, particularly the Pseudomonas, Bacillus, Thiobacillus, Dinitrificans, and Thiotheopons. Those are all the bacterial organisms that drive this. I know that sounds fancy, it is, but each one of those uh, genuses has just tons of different species and subspecies underneath them. There are so many different bacteria that drive this process, and all of them take nitrate and turn it into a gas. And it leaves your soil and it goes into the atmosphere and it's gone, your plants can never get it again until it's fixed, either through microbial processes like rhizobium and nitrogenase or through the Haber-Bosch process. Is anybody familiar with the Haber-Bosch process? Who's not familiar with the Haber-Bosch process? Oh, wow. My goodness. I'm really in trouble now. <laughs> okay. Well, Haber, Haber and Bosch were two German chemists that, that uh, discovered how to, how to take nitrogen out of the air and uh, turn it into nitrite, if I'm not mistaken. I'm sorry. Uh, and these were German scientists in World War II who needed nitrogen to make uh, munitions. The majority of the nitrate at that time came from Chile, calcium nitrate. Uh, I forget what they called the product at the time. Uh, uh, whatever it was called. It was calcium nitrate is what it was. It was mined. And um, anyway, if you, couldn't, if you didn't have access to that nitrogen from coming from Chile, you weren't going to make bombs and explosives and other things that you needed to win the war and, and, and start your thousand-year Reich. So they, Haber and Bosch discovered a Haber-Bosch process. And it's the method that is still used today for sequestering, pulling nitrogen out of the atmosphere and turning it into the fertilizers that we use. And it is estimated that 50% of everybody's nitrogen, everybody in this room, the nitrogen that's in your body, 50% of that, at a minimum, came from the Haber-Bosch process. You wouldn't, 50% of your nitrogen in your body, which means right off the bat that 50% of the Earth's planet wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Haber and Bosch. <laughs> so if you can think of it that way. So, you know, that's what the Holocaust brought out, an explosion in, in global population. So, it, I don't know, but that's what, that's what that's, Hitler's responsible for that. 
So uh, it's kind of complicated, but <laughs> it's just funny how, how the Lord works, isn't it? <laughs> so that's denitrification. Um, immobilization is taking nitrogen, usually particularly nitri uh, nitrate, and uh, going into plant tissues or uh, the microbial plant sink, which is just microbes or dead plant tissues. Um, and then, you know, it can be removed from the soil. So I'm going to take a pause and I'm going to take you back to the beginning because there's something I didn't say from the very beginning. Uh, this here is the nitrogen cycle and how nitrogen would move in the soil. So it has in it a whole bunch of different boxes. If you start with the blue, I'm sorry, the green boxes, those are additions. So how can nitrogen be added to your soil? There's into fixation, symbiotic and non-symbiotic. Um, it's really important to understand uh, how effective non-symbiotic uh, nitrogen fixation is because a lot of products are out there making you big, big, uh, big promises for nitrogen fixation. And they say, this microorganism will do this and the other thing, and they charge you good money for it. But uh, reality is they add hardly anything. And a lot of those products fall under azotobacter. And uh, Clostrodium and blue-green well, blue, blue algae will do it, but that's not usually something you buy. Uh, azotobacter is usually what is sold. And uh, when you get your packet, you look at the active species, and it'll say azotobacter, blah, blah, blah. Some one of the, there's a lot of different species out there, but they'll say that's one of them. But azotobacter really is the amount of nitrogen that it can fix is like, I don't know, like not even a pound to the acre. It's just, it's just not a lot. Why? Because it uses, it's, it's, a, it's a chemotroph. And, uh, and some of them are heterotrophs. And other, what that means is that they use chemical and organic compounds that are already in the soil, the energy that is available in them, to fix that nitrogen. So their energy source is very limited. So what that means is that they're not going to fix an awful lot of nitrogen for you. Well, if we turn to the, the uh, rhizobi rhizobium uh, genus, which is found in, in mesquite and alfalfa and soybeans and many other things, uh, or the Frankia species, which is found in uh, alder trees, those can fix an awful lot of nitrogen. But where's, what is their energy source? It's the photosynthates from the plant. So the reason why they can fix, you know, some of them as much as 300 pounds to the acre of nitrogen is because that's how much uh, the, the energy required for that comes from the, uh, the photosynthates that the plant produces. Now, the difficult thing with the Haver-Bosch process, even now in 2007, uh, we're 18, 2018, uh, is that it requires about 1,900 uh, joules per molecule of nitrogen produced. That's a lot. Because when you start doing the math, it turns out to just a ton of energy, just a ton of energy to, to sequester just one molecule of nitrogen. Pull it out of the atmosphere and turn it into something you can use on your farm. A lot of, a lot of energy, which means carbon. Whether it's coming from a windmill or it's coming from uh, 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 fossil fuels or whatever it's coming from, it takes a lot of energy to do that because it's a mechanical process. Microorganisms can do it uh, particularly the uh, rhizobium and frankia with, uh, through nitrogenase, it only requires half that, less than half that much energy, about 900 joules per mole of nitrogen that's sequestered. That's a huge difference in energy consumption. And uh, what a joule is supposed to be one calorie, right? So that's saying 1.9 calories. That unit, I don't know which unit you prefer, but that's a if you want to try to move those units around and figure out how much energy. But the big picture is that organisms can do it with less than half of the energy that's, that the Haber-Bosch process can do it in. 
That's really the thing. That, that's the take-home message there. God's organisms can do it much better than man. But we still did that. So that's another reason why there's a lot of carbon in the atmosphere is because of all that nitrogen we've got to fix. But, hey, we'll keep trucking along here. So we look at, um, okay, so that's those two. So these are the addition. Industrial, this is the difference between industrial fixation and uh, N2 fixation from species, as you can see in the top graph. Uh, the left is N2 fixation. The next one's industrial fixation, Haber-Bosch process. In particular, um, which eventually, you know, that becomes fertilizers and it goes into the ground. There's other fertilizations that can be used. That's why there's a different box of fertilization. You can get nitrogen from your, uh, a lot of your organic sources like blood mill or uh, compost or uh, fish emulsions. Uh, and the list goes on and on and on. There's just anything you can think about is out there that you can add to your soil that supposedly has some level of nitrogen in it. Then there's lightning and rainfall. They bring in some lightning, and this is where they say that, oh, it must have happened through lightning and rainfall, that somehow nitrogen entered this, you know, pre-mortal pool and blah, 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 and I don't know what else, but, yeah, that's how it happened. But, man, that is so wild out there. Uh, I can't even hardly believe that. Seeing how, how volatile nitrogen, nitrate is, once you begin to understand how volatile nit nitrate is, I highly doubt it would have lasted very long in any, in any pre-mortal soup. So uh, that, really, that really throws another, another monkey wrench into the theory of evolution and, and origin of species, but uh, I'll keep going. Plant and animal residues, uh, manures, um, uh, again, the plants. So uh, this is really where plant and animal residues is really where the or, uh, uh, microbial metabolism takes place. So if you're applying a compost, uh, manure, whether composted or not, um, uh, you go out and you... You till, you, you, I'll, talk, I'll, be, I'll be doing a class on, on, on uh, cover crops, and I'll talk about cover crops, and some of the cover crops you might grow are specifically for the purpose of sequestering nitrogen and getting that organic matter built up in your soil. Uh, so those crops that you mow and till into the ground, again, are adding nitrogen into that soil, which microorganisms will break down those proteins in those legumes and make that nitrogen available to you, or well, not to you, but to your crop, the next crop that comes into the ground. So that's another place that you can get additions. Now we're going to look at losses in the yellow boxes. I got numbers fixed to them that are estimates of uh, and the average uh, uh, piece of uh, ground that is actually used for agricultural purposes. Okay, so if we look at the, uh, we'll start on the top left. Um, for those, uh, you see you got 15 to 40 kilograms per hectare, which is about the same as saying 15 to 40 pounds per acre of N2, NO, and N2O gas that uh, escapes the soil through denitrification. This was nitrate, which was plant available, that eventually was lost due to uh, denitrification. And uh, these conditions are favored when the soil is flooded, which is another reason why you should intelligently irrigate your soils. That is to say, you don't really want to be flooding them when they don't need to be flooded. And if you've got a field that floods regularly, you really don't need to be putting uh, extra amounts of nitrogen down because it's probably not going to do you any good. It's most likely going to volatize or leach out. Denitrification or leaching. You look at the bottom, you have leaching. Zero to 40 kilograms per hectare. That's the same as pounds per acre. On, uh, could be lost in your field just from leaching. If you've got a sandy field, and especially if you're close to a river somewhere and you're in a high rainfall environment, you're going to experience some leaching. That's exactly the type of place that you don't want to be making additions of nitrate-based fertilizers, whether they're synthetic or organic, because you're going to lose them. They're going to just leach. Uh, they're, the entire upper Mississippi River Delta, the Gulf of Mexico, and many other parts of this country, our waterways have been destroyed. I, I don't have a photo, but 
uh, even out in New England and anywhere where it has been farmed uh, rather extensively for a number of years, the water tables are destroyed because they're contaminated in nitrate and you can't drink the water anymore. Uh, the ponds have been contaminated. And all of this is through a man's misunderstanding of how this works. And it's why, again, we've got to bring science into our understanding of agriculture and what we're doing. Even if it's just basic, but we've got to get some understanding because we lose a lot of nitrate in there. And folks will make additions of chemicals and they say, you know, more is better. And they add that extra, but really, guys, what you're doing is you're throwing your money away. And you're contaminating the environment. And if you don't care about the environment, well, most people at least care about their money. Uh, you don't want to waste your money if you don't care about the environment. I mean, uh, I care about the environment only to the extent that I know God is going to destroy it. I don't make it my idol, but I do, I do believe that God has uh, asked us to be good stewards of the planet. And because we have not been good stewards, and because of the fact that we are sinful men, sin, because of sin... God will have to melt this planet in the fervent heat to get rid of all the things that we have done and recreate it. But for the meantime, let's do the best we can. Uh, next place for lossing is organic matter. So, I mean, if you're in the business of farming, you're going to grow something so that you can sell it. You don't just grow things for fun. Well, some people do, but most of us grow things for money. And if we're going to grow things for money, that means that we're going to haul a harvest. We're going to take a harvest and we're going to haul that and we're going to sell it somewhere at the markets or whatever. Uh, it's going to go away. And uh, when you haul that truckload of, you know, whatever your harvest is, you're, you're hauling nitrogen and all, as well as many other nutrients out of your field. So that's another avenue of loss. Um, and we have, uh, let's see, we have uh, ammonia volatilization uh, in the process of breaking down uh, uh, microbial metabolism when those proteins are broken off of those carbon compounds by the, micro, by the microorganisms they can be volatilized. It's referred to as ammonia volatilization. And what that means is that it turns into ammonia gas and then it leaves your soil. So these conditions are favored in a soil that is heavily tilled. And this is another reason why it's argued don't till so much or you know, reduce your tillage, etc., etc. If you till too much, especially because it's driven microbially, um, you really don't want to till excessively when that soil temperature is, you know, at the, at the right temperature to be metabolizing those, those compounds and making that, nit that ammonia available and ultimately uh, leaving the environment. And in this graph, you have different, uh, let's see, in the blue here are some of the uh, genuses of the species that drive these losses and additions. So not all of them are listed here, but it does give you a general idea. I figured that in here, if there are some real farmers in here, or even some folks that are just trying to learn a thing or two, that you would be interested in trying to figure out what species drive these processes. Um, and the biggest reason why I felt like I needed to share that with everyone is because when you go out and, and you get online or you go talk to somebody and they're trying to sell you something, and believe me, you start farming, your phone's going to ring and somebody's going to try to sell you something. And you just never even know what they're trying to sell sell you, but when you start looking at these inoculants, you need to understand what the uh, active species are. And if you understand what they are and what they do, then you, you, you will know more or less whether or not they're of any value. So if you're going to buy legumes and you're worried about fixation, um, you really need to get the right type of rhizobium. And if those legumes are not inoculated with rhizobium uh, and you plant them, yeah, they might you fix some uh, nitrogen for you, but they're not going to give you those promising results of 200 or 300 or whatever it is that, that they claim it's going to fix. Because you need the, that bacteria to form those nodules and those roots to fix that nitrogen. Uh, and if you know, your soil has been so beat up that there's probably only very little rhizobium, I guarantee you, no matter who you are, where you are, there's rhizobium in your soil. 
You don't have to inoculate if you don't want to, but you're not going to get those numbers you're looking for, the 200 to, well, even 100, as little as 100. Some of them go as high as 300 pounds to the acre of nitrogen that can be fixed. But even as little as 100 uh, can sometimes be challenging if you don't inoculate those, uh, uh, those uh, legumes before you plant them. The second thing that I'll talk about a little bit more is calcium. If, and the reason why calcium is so important in the soil, you keep seeing calcium bringing, I, I bring it up regularly, calcium needs to be in there. If you don't, if the ratio of all the cations in the soil in comparison to calcium, well, let, let, let me say the reverse. If the ratio of calcium in comparison to all the other cations in the soil uh, goes down below five, your, your root cell walls begin to break down. Now, rhizobium is dependent upon forming nodules in your roots. And if you don't have good, strong cells in those roots, you're not going to have good relationships with rhizobium, and you're not going to get that fixation. So in a lot of these legume fields, I've seen alfalfa fields and clover fields that really struggle and don't get the production they, should, they, they really need, uh, and they were inoculated and many other things were done. It's because they don't have enough calcium. But many of the laboratories don't test it right, and I won't go down that route. Uh, other folks have really covered it already. I want to stick to the biology. Uh, but you can make those notes, and you can talk with those folks when you're, when you're ready to ask those questions. Uh, let's see, where was I? Okay, next slide. Now, we've looked at forms of losses in the soil. There's elemental nitrogen, gas in soil atmosphere, dissolves in soil water, uh, symbiotic and non-symbiotic fixation, um, inorganic forms of gases uh, present in small amounts in soils is N2O, NO, N, uh, NO2, and NH3. Ionic forms is the uh, ammonium and, uh, and nitrate and nitrite. Organic forms is actually, here's another interesting thing to note. 98% of... Total soil, nitrogen is in the form of organic compounds. 20% uh, of the world's nitrogen, global nitrogen. So 78% of global nitrogen is in the atmosphere, right? It's in the air we're breathing right now today. Another 20% is believed to be uh, sequestered or locked up in organic matter, both dead and living, and the plant's crust. You add the two together, you end up with, what, about 98%? That other 2% of global nitrogen is, is locked up in, in uh, other processes and in, in salts and other things like that that are really not all that important to the nitrogen cycle. They're usually locked up in mine or underground you know, quarries and things like that, but the, the bulk of it is, is on the crust. So when we start looking at your organic matter, this is where uh, you know, they used to say that uh, there was a method that came out, 1% organic matter equaled uh, uh, 20 percent, uh, no, what was it, no, 20 pounds to the acre. So if your soil had, you know, 5 percent organic matter, you got 100 pounds of nitrogen to the acre. Yeah, it, you probably do, but that doesn't mean that you're going to mineralize that. That doesn't mean that that's going to become plant available for your crop. Um, this, is, this is where you get into some really debated stuff, even in the science, soil science community, as to how you really gauge how much nitrogen is going to become mineralized, is going to mineralize, which means made plant available. Uh, during the growing season. So having 5% organic matter, again, is a, is, and, and trying to use a, a 1% per 20 pounds an acre is a rough guess, but it helps you to get somewhere. Uh, but anyway, a lot of organic, a lot of nitrogen is in the soil. So nitrogen gains that come from fixation, a biological or mechanical fertilizer. So bio, uh, mechanical, of course, is the Haber-Bosch process. Fixation is going to be from rhizobium and, uh, and Frankia and a few other... Uh, 
a fungal species that can also do it. Uh, animal manures and crop residues are also nitrogen gains into your soil. Uh, nitrogen losses, plant uptake, denitrification, volatilization, leaching, ammonia, fixation. Uh, these are all terms that I'm pretty sure I have defined on the Google Drive. So if you really, if they're just flying over your head, uh, look them up later. I encourage you to read that stuff. Uh, nitrogen cycle without, uh, within soil, nitrogen not loss and mobilization, which is nitrogen locked up in certain types of biological processes as well as mineral rocks that uh, become uh, non-available to uh, plants. And then there's uh, uh, mineralization, which is making it a plant available. And then there's nitrification, which is the loss. Okay, so, oh, well, here's some more vocabulary for nitrification conversion of N2O to NO3. Uh, denitrification, conversion of NO3 to nitrogen gas, mobilization, conversion of uh, plant-available nitrogen to plant-unavailable nitrogen, nitrogen fixation, non-organic, non-mineral forms of nitrogen to organic forms of nitrogen. So this is taking mostly nitrogen gas, using it to produce uh, uh, amino, using it through nitrogenase to eventually form NH2, which is uh, used to make uh, the amine group of uh, a protein. It's kind of gets hairy for some of you that don't understand the biology or organic chemistry, but essentially you're taking nitrogen gas and we're making a protein out of it. So when we think about how does nitrogen actually get fixed out of the environment and eventually be become available to our crops, well first you got to plant something like legumes that will sequester that nitrogen and are they going to make nitrogen available in the future? Not necessarily, but what they do do is that they make clover and they make alfalfa, and they make these other things that will die, will be metabolized by microorganisms next year's crop, and then that crop will be benefiting from the nitrogen that came out of the plant tissues of last year's crop. That's really how you drive your nitrogen. So in case there's some confusion about that, however, there have been tests done that have looked at things like um, rye uh, planted together with uh, clovers and other things to see if the rye benefited from the fixation of nitrogen by those microorganisms in clover. Now, rye has no capacity to make these uh, symbiotic relationships with rhizobia or, or any other species that would favor the nitrogen fixation. But if it's planted and those roots are mixed in with the roots of clover that is fixed, it was actually shown that it benefited rather significantly and was able to get some of that nitrogen too. Uh, the science behind that is still uh, debatable, but it has been proven. Okay. I talked about nitrogen mineralization, conversion to organic matter, nitrogen to ammonia through two reactions, aminization, which converts proteins and residues to ammonia acids and amines and urea. And then you got the second step, which is ammonification, further converts organic nitrogen compounds to inorganic ammonium. And then that can be processed back to nitrate. But both ammonium and nitrate can be taken up by the plant. I want to keep going because I got a lot of stuff to cover here. I'm sorry. Uh, nitrogen immobilization, conversion of inorganic nitrogen, uh, mostly what is available to the plants, to organic nitrogen, uh, which means you're, you're making plant tissues out of it. Uh, this is a graph here that I added. Uh, effect of carbon to nitrogen ratio of organic materials on a mineralizable, a mineralization and immobilization, again. That's making it plant available or making it plant unavailable. And what we will see is that, <clears throat> uh, well, there's a, a zero, well, there's a zero there that you can't see between the 10 and the negative 10. Uh, but if your carbon to nitrogen ratios uh, get too high, you immobilize 
nitrogen. What does that mean? That means that the nitrogen that's in your soil that was available to organisms, uh, was available, I'm sorry, to plants, is now made unavailable because it has taken that nitrogen to break down that carbon. Remember I said microbes always eat first. So if the microorganisms need that nitrogen to break those, carb those complex carbon tissues down, or the fungus, whether it's bacterial or fungal, it's, it, it goes the same. They need that nitrogen to break down those carbon tissues. So if the, the carbon is too high in your soil, you see a loss of nitrogen that's available to your plants. Not a loss of nitrogen from the system. The nitrogen is still in your soil. It's just no longer available to your plants. That's the difference. Um, okay, I threw this one up there. Like I said earlier, I wanted folks to really understand what species will do what. This is something you need to look at in the future. But uh, if you go out and you buy a bag of seed and, and it, or alfalfa or clover and it doesn't come with a, the uh, inoculated and you want to inoculate it, you need to make sure you get the right rhizobium. Not every rhizobium is going to inoculate with every plant. So we're looking at, uh, and actually there's a lot because this is, uh, there's a lot of subspecies. So we'll, let's see, I'll just mention a few. For uh, Bra uh, Bra Brady rhizobium elcani, that's for soybeans if you're looking to do soybeans. Uh, if you're looking Brady uh, Rhizobia Yuanmingjinsing, whoa, that's a hard one. <clears throat> I think that one came from China. That's for Lespedeza. Uh, let's see. So these species are specific. This, in a nutshell, I don't want to go through all of them. You can look at it at your own time. But these species are specific. You need a specific type of rhizobium for that specific plant. In other words, you can't just put any old rhizobium on any old plant and expect good results. They're oftentimes, they're, they're very specific. They're looking for particular genes. And this is available on the uh, drive. I know pe folks are taking pictures. Go to the Google Drive and get it. You'll get a much prettier picture. Uh, it'll be eligible. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, you'll be able to read it, and uh, you want to keep that with you if you're serious about using cover crops uh, to plant or, or any other type of uh, plant species to sequester nitrogen. You need to make sure you've got the right species of rhizobia on there, and you need to make sure that your seeds are properly inoculated wherever you're getting them from. So I would encourage you to go to that source if you're looking for that. It, it's online. Go to... Uh, but I mean on the, when you're buying the inoculated. Yes. When you buy a bag of seeds, it should tell you if it's inoculated. And if it's inoculated, it'll tell you what species it was inoculated with. It should be there. But a lot of times we overlook that stuff because you see, you know, rhizobia, brandywine, minikai, and you say, I don't know what that is. And you just plant it, and you don't know what it is. So the, this source here is for you to check to make sure that you have the right species for your crop. Okay, and this came straight out of the textbook. This is not my opinion. Um, I have that textbook on there. You can look it up. It's in the nitrogen cycle uh, chapter. I don't remember the chapter. Yeah, it's in there. Um, okay, yeah. Okay, so now I want to get into nodulation. Everybody wants to know, how does, I, 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 for a long time, couldn't grasp how does rhizobia form nodules to fix, uh, or any bacteria or anything form uh, these, these nodules to fix nitrogen. I didn't even know it formed nodules at one point. I was just fascinated by this. And I wanted to present this to you guys so that you have an understanding of how this works. Events leading to nodulation and denitrification in legumes is uh, attachment of rhizobia. And I'm going to actually go through these things. Um, I believe I have them here on the slide. Let's see. Yes, I do. Uh, these are the steps that it goes through. I'm going to talk about it some more, so I'm just going to keep going uh, later on. Nitrogen use fertility. So we're looking at uh, efficiency of nitrogen uh, in f uh, fertilizers is frequently low. So I talked about how we make additions of nitrogen, and a lot of times they're volatilized or they're leached. That means they leave. 
and they'll never go to the plant. Uh, and oftentimes, as much as 50% of the nitrogen you put down, whether it's organic or synthetic or whatever it is, is lost through leaching or through volatilization. So it's really important that you start considering the nitrogen cycle. That's why I say you really got to understand that thing. How does that work? Read about it. Information is out there. Uh, you'll have to educate yourself. I cannot teach you all of it in six hours. I'm sorry. But definitely uh, a lot of nitrogen is lost in uh, our agroecosystems, usually because we don't understand the way nitrogen moves through the soil. Uh, here's an example of urea molecule. Um, an example, this, this is an example of urea placed on the surface of soil versus urea placed in the soil. So uh, if you're doing uh, aqueous, uh, some people will use uh, aqueous uh, urea. Um, they inject it into the soil usually, well, I don't know, 18 inches deep or so. Uh, but sometimes we just spread urea on the surface and we don't, you know, we don't bother to till it or anything. We just leave it there. Uh, so what happens with urea when you put it on the surface? Urea is hydrolyzed by urease in the soil surface, and uh, part of the NH3 that is released may be lost to the air because it, it immediately that goes to aqueous gas. So it goes from NH2 to NH3 relatively quickly and uh, goes into the atmosphere and is gone. I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that ugly smell you smell. When you smell that nasty smell it's after uh, biosolids have been applied or other things like that. I don't know if you guys are familiar with biosolids, but... When they apply that fresh uh, manure waste and you get that strong ammonia smell, that's what that is. It's that gaseous ammonia just going into the atmosphere. Uh, here's another uh, time of nitrogen availability. I talked about timing the planting of your crops with the, plant, with the uh, mineralizing of nitrogen in the soil. So what times the seeding, uh, does, uh, from seeding to harvest, at what stages does the crop actually, is the crop actually looking for nitrogen? And uh, it's, the period of rapid nitrogen uptake is usually just a, f a few days after the cotyledon stage, in the rapid cellular expansion stage, when, it, when it's growing the factory that's essentially going to make the fruit. So it's really early in the game that the crops are looking for uh, nitrogen. It's not late in the game. Uh, timing of nitrogen availability. Uh, again, here we go. We're looking at um, uh, this was seeding rate, nitrogen demand, small rapid, vegeta uh, rapid vegetative growth is what it's called, which is four to six weeks after uh, germination. So you're looking at a, over a month. I'm sorry, I'm standing in the way for some people. You're looking at over, over a month. Uh, after you've planted uh, your crop, that it's really looking for the highest demand of nitrogen. So if you're adding these things way before or way after, um, and then you've got to account for your mineralization, your breaking down, you see that you're probably adding your nitrogen too early or too late in the game, and you're losing, you're losing it. And then by the time it's made available, uh, usually the plants are already stunted, and uh, growth is going to slow. So it's really, it's really important that you're, you're timing these things correctly if you're going to be making these additions. Um, now, if you, lose, if you know you're going to lose a lot to leaching, we talked about leaching, which was at the very bottom. This is uh, an example of a catch crop, which is cereal rye cover crop, which scavenges nitrogen. Now, what you're looking at is soil samples were taken at 10 uh, inches, 20 inches, 30 inches, and 40 inch depths and they were tested for nitrate. Uh, one had a, a cereal rye planted and the other one didn't. And what you can see is the difference in the nitrate levels in the soil uh, uh, based off of 
whether it had cereal rye or it didn't have cereal rye. This is one of the reasons why cereal, cereal rye is an excellent winter cover crop to scavenge those nutrients, pull it out, put it into plant tissues, which are usually going to be slightly higher in carbon and uh, are going to lock that nitrogen up, which is called immobilization, which means it's not going to be able to go anywhere. It's going to sit in those plant tissues in that soil until the microorganisms break it down, making it available in the future for some other crop. Uh, and this is an example of how much uh, nitrate can leach through a soil relatively quickly in the wintertime. Okay. Went ahead and talked about nitrate losses. Now, when we get back for the next hour, I'm going to talk about a lot of the science behind how nitrogen is actually uh, sequestered and what minerals we really want to have in the soil because of the processes that are associated with it in order to get maximum uh, fixation of nitrogen. Uh, let's see, we are, we've got about, okay, we've got about 20 minutes. I know there's got to be questions. <laughs> the reason I was confused about the fruiting, I can see something like cereal rye, but often when you put nitri uh, nitrogen too soon on something like tomatoes, Mm -hmm. And, and, and uh, you know, I mean, uh, well, you get fruit, but the fruit is, your, your foliage production is over. Okay. So, so, yeah, she's saying that's, uh, I said that, it, that you don't need the nitrogen at the fruiting stage, but she says she's made applications of nitrogen, and she has seen that the plant has gotten too vegetative, uh, probably too, too, too leggy and vigorous with little fruit. Uh, the reason is probably because you put too much nitrogen down. So we're not looking at the effects of too much nitrogen. We're looking at the effects of when the plant is actually wanting the nitrogen. And those are usually early on in the stage, way before it's even set its first flowers. And what it's wanting to do is build that stem, build those leaves, and build all those plant uh, uh, proteins that make that plant. Well, that's why I say to build the factory that will build the fruit. That's when it needs the nitrogen. There's not that much nitrogen in the actual seed. Yeah, yeah. At any point. This is early on, early in the growth stage of the plant. Go ahead. That's four to six weeks after germination. Okay. So you germinate, then you go into the cotyledon stage. By the time you enter cotyledon stage, any, anything that it's, it was in the seed has now been consumed. The plant is now looking for nutrients from the soil or from soil solution or whatever, you know, depending on your growth system. And then um, it, one of the things that it has a gradual, at first it's very gradual, but after a few weeks it really wants a lot of nitrogen because it starts off by building its root system. And once the root system gets going, the rest of it gets going and the whole thing just keeps expanding. So we're talking about the phenology, uh, and this is all generalized. I'm not making specific claims to any specific crop. There is a lot of deviation. There are always exceptions in this, but this is a real general application. Wow, three hands went up. I'm oh, sorry, way in the back. What about uh, with perennial crops? Like, would it be like after petals fall that they would really start to want nitrogen? With perennial crops, see, okay, perennial crops, like I'll give you some examples like with orchards. A lot of people make the mistake of, of fertilizing orchards in the spring. The problem is that you really got to keep that, I'm sorry, let me go take a few steps back. Fertilizing orchards with nitrogen in the spring, okay? Uh, and the reason why you should avoid that, why you want to push nitrogen way later, and it would begin to make sense 
uh, if you even really need it till after the flowering stage because what happens is if your calcium to nitrogen ratios are low early uh, when the floral buds are being formed, so this is way before your flowers actually bloom, we're talking about when the floral buds are being formed in the stems, so you're not, you haven't had the actual tissues yet, uh, that is when the calcium enters that part of those buds and that what's going to become the seed. And you need that calcium there to form those cells so that you can have stronger cells. If you, if you have too much nitrogen, you won't get the, you won't get the calcium in there and you'll have uh, your, your pest, pest and uh, fungal diseases will come in, uh, particularly with uh, your stone fruits uh, like apple uh, and uh, what other fruits? Um, cherries and, uh, and then apples as well. And, and uh, there's a number of, uh, pretty, all of them, all of them. Well, all of them, all of them. It's the same with all of them. So when were you saying put nitrogen on the well, if you're going to, if you think that your orchard needs nitrogen, it needs to be applied after the floral budding stage, which means you apply that probably in the summer of the, preferably the fall. And then uh, your limes and other things like that you should put in the spring. Uh, especially if you're going to use a uh, micronized. If you're going to use, um, um, Okay, I shouldn't say lime because then that really throws everybody off. Lime means something different to every single person. Um, if you're going to use like micronized calcium carbonate, which is something that's going to become available very quickly, yeah, go ahead and put it in the spring. But if you're going to be using your pelletized uh, or ag lime or any of that stuff that takes a long time to break, a high, a high mesh, uh, low mesh number, uh, then you want to put that down probably in the uh, fall or at some point where you know that it will become plant available when the plant needs it. You want it plant available in the spring. Uh, some of those things can take a long. I don't have those charts, but I could show you charts of the different mesh and when it becomes available. And um, if you're having a lot of fungal problems with your orchard, which most everybody does, I recommend micronized calcium carbonate um, real early in the game. Uh, you're talking about it pretty much as soon as the frost is gone and you want to put that stuff down, but um, that's because it becomes immediately available. I mean, real quick. That stuff, that's the 200 mesh calcium, pure calcium, 40% uh, calcium by weight. So it's, it becomes available real quickly. While some of the other limes take uh, a while, even if they're still the same substance, um, it might take several months, several years even to become available. Okay, uh, next question. Uh, what are you going to plant after you, okay, the question is he's got a cover crop down. He wants to know when would be the best time to plow it down, the fall or the spring. My answer to you would be depends on what you're planting after that. Sweet corn. Sweet corn? Oh, okay. So what you would want to do is you, uh, are you going to transplant your corn or are you going to go straight to the ground? Okay, you're going to the ground? Seed. You're going to seed corn. Okay. So uh, you want, again, you want that thing coming in about four to six weeks. I would say that you would probably just want that thing tilled down somewhere between two to four weeks before. Okay, so you would want to till that down. You pretty much you till it in and immediately afterwards you go to seed. Uh, the only exception is if there's allolithic properties or allele. I'm sorry, my tongue is getting tired here. Allolithic properties, I think I'm saying that right. Uh, anyway, that's when you have a lot of different uh, chemicals that are released by roots that prohibit germination of other seeds. That's the only thing you need to worry about if those species <coughs> conflict with each other, which I do not believe that those species do. It's all green. Uh-huh. Okay, so, yeah, okay. I, I, you brought up two things. One, okay, he said if you wait, if you just let it die off, winter kill, I guess, and, and then you wait till the spring to till it into the ground and then plant your sweet corn, um, there's two things. One, you never want to leave the soil bare. So if you're not going to plant the winter cover crop, 
then don't till it. And that's my advice no matter what it is. Um, second, uh, this is a debated issue, even in the scientific community. Because when you let that thing sit there and die, those plant tissues become yellow, right? There is some loss of nitrogen. It goes back into the environment. That's what some argue. Uh, others argue it doesn't, it goes to the roots. But anyway, scientists go back and forth about what really happens with that nitrogen. We still don't know, bottom line. We don't know what happens with that nitrogen, but we do know that there is a reduction of uh, nitrogen in the plant tissues if you let it yellow out like that above ground. Um, so that will reduce your plant available nitrogen uh, in the spring at, compared to taking green plant tissues in the fall or at any other time of the year and tilling that into the ground and then waiting, to, waiting for that to mineralize, become plant available to the next crop that you may have put immediately after tillage. So it really, again, it depends. What are you doing? If you're, not, if you're gonna just let it go, you're not gonna do anything with it until the spring, then it would be best to just not do anything with it. Leave it there, you use it as a cover, it'll prohibit erosion, it'll, keep, it'll control uh, soil moisture, uh, or soil temperatures and moisture, it'll allow your soil not to freeze as easily or as quickly and thaw out sooner than if you had it bare ground. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of things that kind of go around that question. <coughs> Um, okay, the question is tarping. Tarping soils, um, well, I'm not sure if what you mean is solar sol a soil solarization, is that what you mean? No, no, tarping or, a cover crop. Okay, so just putting, just putting a crop, uh, putting like a, any t some type of, of uh, plastic or something yeah. over the top of a given... Okay, um, so if you did that, what I would see is that you would start killing those plants. Uh, microorganisms would start breaking it down. Uh, that would also probably keep the temperatures up higher, which would increase microbial metabolism, which means that microbes are going to multiply. They're going to break down those tissues. They're going to make nutrients available. And at the same time, you're not going to have anything there to suck those nutrients up. Uh, so I think it would really be a game of what are you trying to accomplish. And if, what you're trying, if, that, thing, if that practice fits what you're trying to accomplish, then use it. But if not, then I would say no, and I'm not sure what you're trying to accomplish, so I can't answer whether or not it's a good idea or a bad idea. But it, I guess it is a tool that you can get the, the temperature of the soil up quicker, uh, you can get things going faster, and if you get it hot enough, like soil solarization, you can kill a lot of pathogens in there. Well, I'm not sure that that's what they're doing. Um, we have an uh, interesting sewage treatment plant. Okay, so he's talking about biosolids. That's what that is, human biosolids. <clears throat> so he's talking about human biosolids. To use them or not to use them. Here's my thing. Who knows what happened in Flint, Michigan? Does anybody not know what happened in Flint, Michigan's drinking water system? Okay. Nobody, no, everybody knows what happened. Uh, in a nutshell, they got a lot of lead in their drinking water. Where did the lead come from? It came from eroding pipes. Okay, great. Now, think about this. There's supply, and then there is, there's a water source, and then there's a way to take water away, right? And what is that? Your sewage. So most municipalities have some type of uh, old school lead piping. Um, sometimes arsenic is found in there and other things, but uh, make a long story short, biosolids have a lot of leads in them um, because of municipal waste. There's other heavy metals in there as well. 
So if you're using biosolids, uh, you need to get it tested for heavy metals. And if you like the numbers you see, then go for it. And if you don't, then don't use it. Otherwise, it's an excellent product. That's, and that's all I could say in a short period of time. Is it, is it uh, organic uh, proof? Uh, I believe so, but you'd have to check with your organic certifier. But I don't, I, I don't know. I've heard yes, I've heard no, but it, again, it all goes back to who's certifying you and then where it's coming from and, and what it's got in it. But as far as I, th I believe, biosolids are good. But then, then again, it also depends, too, another thing, um, where those biosolids come from. So if they're coming from confined feeding lots, a lot of the times they say no. And I can tell you a story. Um, uh, okay, Oregon State University uh, students took, um, always do, every year they do a composting thing. And they compost for the kids to go out and they get compost and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they went out to, one year they decided that they didn't have the compost from the landscaping, uh, the groundskeeping crew. So they went to the, uh, the veterinary school. And they got manure from over there. And then they went and they tried to compost it. Every year they compost, this, you know, they have run these compost bins. And this particular year they used the manure from the uh, uh, veterinary school. And um, uh, six months or so into it, man, this pile is just not decomposing. What's going on? So <laughs> I said, what's going on here? So they took the stuff and they went and they tested it and they found out it was just way too many antibiotics in there. So what happens with antibiotic? Antibiology is what that means. So it killed so much of the bacteria in, in that pile that it, it, there wasn't anything there to decompose that compost. So that compost sat there and what it did not decompose. Uh, that's just one story I could share with you. I mean, I, I have never really used... Um, these, these things from uh, confined animal feedlots, but they, all, they also, a lot of them use a lot of antibiotics. If you're going to be getting your biosolids from there, uh, I think that a lot of organic certifiers would probably frown on that. But again, you know, you got to go to talk to your certifier. I'm not going to speak for them. I, I don't know. Any other questions? Okay, well, there's one way in the back. Uh, gentlemen. Depend, again, well, there's a lot more to it. I, I don't want to make generalizations. Uh, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. If you're going to put a cover crop down, it would be better to do it in the fall. Uh, what, what I'm saying, it's better to do it in the fall or the spring than in the middle of summer. That's, that's the point I'm trying to make. I guess maybe I, I, I tippy-toed around it. I didn't make that point strong enough. But what I was trying to say is if you do it in the middle of the summer where the soil is really warm, that's when you're going to wear down your organic matter. You're really going to push your organic matter south. Why? Because you introduce so much oxygen every time you do that, that you put this rush in microbial metabolism, burns up the organic matter, reducing the organic matter in your soil. So whether to do it in the spring or the fall, it really depends on what you're doing. So I was doing that. I had a plot of ground that I was trying to build the soil up. I grew several crops of buckwheat summer. Okay. And what was happening is I was... Okay. I, okay, he says that he was planting buckwheat as a cover crop and then he was um, tilling in the middle of the summer. Is that reason why his organic matter went down? I would tell you there's two reasons. One, you were doing it in the summer, but two, buckwheat is not a good crop, cover crop for building organic matter. Uh, buckwheat will grow in just about anything. It doesn't hardly have anything to it. It's a very simple species. That's what it's known for. Um, you won't get the percentage of... Uh, uh, biomass that you want going into the soil. There just isn't much to buckwheat. 
if you want to build organic matter, you got to use other crops, uh, particularly your legumes mixed in with uh, your rice and your clovers, because um, those rice and clovers are real high. They have a real high carbon to nitrogen ratio, while the legumes have a real low. So if you can do a mixture of the two somehow, you got to manage this. Now, this is just I'm making generalized applications here. I'm not telling anybody what to do, but you you take a certain portion of you know, you got to mix your 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 planting. Usually, mix seed some legume with some rye, and you could throw a third one in there if you want to do vetch or cowpeas. Uh, those are still legumes, I guess, so you can continue to do that. But it will, um, it will ultimately build up that organic matter uh, and introduce Sudan grass in there at some point. Uh, to Again, that's a green manure. It's just you're building organic matter with those species. Buckwheat is not something you want to use for building organic matter. It, you won't, it'll, just, it'll take you a long time to do it is the problem. It doesn't put out enough vegetative mass. Um, man, I saw like three hands go up real quick. I don't know who was first. Uh, I think this guy who hasn't had a chance to ask a question. Um, you can, uh, foliar feeding is usually going to go straight into the plant, but it depends on what you're feeding. Um, I've seen people use foliar feed with things that uh, are not going to go into the cells of the plant. So it's really, you're wasting your time foliar spraying a nutrient that will not really move. It's not mobile in the plant. There are other nutrients that are mobile in the plant, but then if your purpose is to build up the soil by foli foliar spraying, uh, you got to ask yourself, where is that plant tissue going to end up? So if you're foliar spraying something like, say, tomatoes, right? Uh, well, that, that whole vine is most likely going to go into the ground. So, yeah, I guess in the long run it'll do it, but you're gonna, it's going to be a slow addition. While if you're foliar spraying, say, oh, I don't know, some uh, kales or something like that, where you're going to harvest that and then you're going to go sell it in the market somewhere, that tissue will never go back into the ground, so it'll never really benefit the soil. You understand what I mean? Yeah, there's a guy, John Kemp, who sells foliar products, right? Yeah. yeah, it depends on what species you're putting, on, putting it on and what you're gonna, ultimately what you're going to do with those plants. So if you're going to put that stuff back into the soil, that, that, those plant tissues, uh, ultimately, yes, it will make additions, but you're probably, foliar spraying, I've never really heard of anyone using that to build soil nutrition. I've, uh, soil nutrient levels. I've heard it mostly for the plant that is growing at the moment. Yeah, that's, that's really a long shot. I mean, maybe it would work in some applications, but not so well in others. But I don't see that really working outside of, of uh, uh, legumes for, because of, and a few other species because of what they will ultimately do with those sugars. I mean, it's just as good as I was saying earlier, just, just fertilize with sugar. And that's your goal, just put sugar in the ground. It'll do just as good. <laughs> I mean, I've, there's some people that actually do that, some growers that actually do that. I saw a hand go up in the middle. Oh. Isn't that the question is how do you, how do you build topsoil the fastest? How do you put more organic matter in the ground? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but where does the energy come? Okay, I'm sorry, I'll repeat that for the recording. Uh, he says that uh, uh, there's a lot of plant exudates uh, and, and microbial exudates in the soil that are responsible for building a lot of your aggregation in the soil. Um, and uh, so he's saying, well, what's better, to, to feed that or to have organic matter or plant tissues going in the soil? And my question is, is um, two things. Okay, so those exudates, from both plant root and uh, microbial, are really more geared towards building soil aggregation. Okay, uh, which is good. That's a good thing. But organic tissues is more for, or, or plant tissues, building that portion of your organic matter 
uh, it's going to be more favorable for mineralizing and making nutrients available in the future. So soil aggregation, glues, and stick something together, you will categorize that more as your stable organic fraction. But plant tissues, you're building your, uh, uh, your uh, unstable, uh, microbially active organic matter fraction. So you're, you're really looking at two different things here. Both needed. Uh, both, yes. In most soils, both are needed. Because usually soils have been pounded so bad that they have terrible aggregation. Yes. Back, well, we're actually about out of time. This will be the last question in the back, and then I'll let everybody go to lunch, I guess. Okay. Yeah, it's definitely time to go to lunch. Uh, you were mentioning that um, using drip tape for irrigation, like, kind of maybe a balance there? Okay, the question was about uh, drip tape and keeping the water close to the moisture, and he says, talks about um, you know, moisture uh, throughout the whole soil profile and microorganisms and other things moving around and what would be favorable. Uh, my, my answer to that question is really depends. For some farmers, you're only given so many shares of water, you can only use what you're given. That's a problem really more out west. You go out to the east where the rain falls from, where the irrigation falls from the sky, then you don't have to worry about that so much. So it really, it's a matter of who you are, or, or where you are, and what you're growing, and you know, what is handed to you. So that's why I say there's no one size fits all. Um, if you're growing out west, there's two things you really want to reduce. Um, it's a serious problem right now in Central Valley, California, and that's a buildup of salts due to excessive amount of water put down on the ground. In those situations, it is far more important to go with the drip tape limited, limited water use system um, as opposed to anything else you might throw out there, flood, especially flood irrigating or sprinkling. Uh, if you're anywhere else, it's probably not even a big deal, and you probably don't really need to even spend a whole lot of time, think, you know, energy thinking about it. But that's mostly for the people out west, um, because the other problem is that with sprinkler irrigation, because you lose so much to evaporation, uh, you have to apply more, which means more salts. Salts are building up every time you irrigate. You want to keep those salts to a minimum. Uh, so that's why, again, it's, it's more than just, okay, you know, are you robbing from Peter to give to Paul? Who's going to win this one? You know, you, sometimes you, some people, some, you got to, you got to give up something somewhere to have something better somewhere else. And you got to make a decision which one you really want. Which one do you really need? The, it depends on what you're growing. He asked about in greenhouses if drip tape is enough. In some cases, yes, because you got so much drip tape in there. In other cases, no. Depends on what you're growing and how much tape you got down and your soils too. If your soils have the characteristics that, they'll move, that they will move the moisture through the soil profile, then yes. But if it's strictly sand, uh, no. But uh, we're all out of time, so we're going to have to close this one up. If you've got any more questions, you're welcome to come and ask me. Um, let us go ahead and uh, break for lunch. Thank you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.